My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Friends and listeners, this is your host, Aaron Odom, coming to you again with another episode of Euripides, Eumenides, a theater history podcast. Coming to you here from my study, the nexus of Trident Theater right now in my basement in Sheridan, Wyoming. (laughs) But I got to say thank you all for listening. If you've just tuned in for your first one, we've got a whole catalog of stuff you can listen to. Go back and listen to that stuff. It's all great. But if you've listened to us up to this point, I so appreciate you sticking around. This is great. We've had a lot of fun so far. And here we are, episode 15. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep going. You know, I'm seeing some of my other favorite podcasts getting up to episode 500. And I'm like, okay, okay. Gauntlet thrown. Gauntlet thrown. Yeah. All right. Now, Today, I have a very special friend of mine. While I was the interim theater instructor at Sheridan College, this person was my sounding board frequently. Uh, She was my uh, department partner. Her work has been amazing. uh, We went to high school together, and I knew this person was going to be just an amazing star. So today, we have the dance faculty from Sheridan College in Sheridan, Wyoming, Stephanie Koltiska. Hello, Stephanie. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. So awesome. So fun. So fun. And and, uh, it was such a great, great time being able to collaborate with you for those couple of years. And of course, you know, the position was, was finite. It was an interim thing. So we got, we got just our little taste of the sun and that was really awesome. Did some great stuff. Yeah, it was. I had such a great time working with you. I think, you know, one of my favorite memories is definitely working on American Idiot with you. Holy smokes. Good Mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. That was a huge show. And um, I think we're glad it's over. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So, so, okay. So since I have been out of that program, you have continued in the dance uh, program. And uh, I got out of that program right as the COVID pandemic hit everything shut down. You know, I I did my best to teach the remainder of my classes for a couple months uh, online, which you know, had its varying, varying degrees of success and failure, but teaching dance online, mm-hmm. what the heck? <laughs> I mean, I, I've talked to so many people in the show about, so how did you do this? And, you know, I've had people teach improv or I'd, I've had people do online shows, but really dance? I know. How, how, what? <laughs> Yeah. You know, at first I was like, you know, I can do this for a couple of weeks. And then a couple of weeks turned into guess what? It's going to be more like six months. Um, 
you know, I said yes to it, um, you know, automatically because I, I wanted to do it. I want my program to succeed. And I didn't realize how many challenges I was actually going to face teaching mm-hmm. students in, you know, their home office, their kitchen, all of that stuff. <laughs> I mean, class really changed to moving through space to, to moving in a tiny box of people's bedrooms. It was definitely right. a challenge. Right. There were lots of tears, myself included. Um, <laughs> but we did it. You know, I, I focused a lot on reminding students that we can still dance even when we're in our homes and, and the space isn't optimal. Um, I spent my college years doing ballet bar at my kitchen in my studio apartment. You know, you have to stay right? You, you have um, to keep doing so, it. You have to keep doing it somehow, right? Right, no matter what. And so I took <laughs> an opportunity to really show them that no matter what space you're in, you can still dance. It just looks a little different. Right. And, and man, you have this ability. There are these amazing students that you find who are just... Mm-hmm. I mean, those people were dynamos. Like, you know, you're going, okay, we're going to, you know, fit you into a shoebox and then mail it to Malaysia. And the whole time you're going to be dancing and come back. And they just go, yep, great, yep. let's do it. Yep. So this um, this last year, you know, we, uh, we were still under some pretty significant precautions. And by the end of the year, we were able to start gathering here and there. I mean, you know, there's still kind of a looming forecast of we might have to do this again. But your end of year show had some really palpable pieces, uh, especially the the opening number, which kind of, um, well, if you don't mind me saying, Stephanie has been uh, trained in uh, tons of places, has a master's from Purchase, has been part of tons of amazing uh, companies, but your primary focus is in dance or modern and ballet. Am, am I right there? Yep, absolutely. Okay, yep. cool. And and your choreography is a lot more a, a lot more towards like contemporary and modern dance. Yeah, definitely my passion. Uh huh. <laughs> so so tell me about that opening number. It kind of looked like it was set not just in homes but in classrooms and in yep. hallways and 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 just people dealing with like this anxiety of coming back into the world after being shut away from it for so long. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going for. So I'm glad that came across. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I yeah, recently kind of just veering off a little bit before I get into that piece, I just started talking to somebody about um, what it means to have something to say as as a choreographer. I feel like Ooh. I've been a dancer for so long and, and wanted to bring other people's visions to life. Um, and finally realizing that it, it's my turn to tell my story or our I need to have something to say. And this and was- you have such a style. Like it's all, I see all your students dance later. And I'm like, oh, that's definitely Stephanie. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You know, and I think it's this first piece, the opening piece of this spring show, I think was really the first time I felt like, yeah, this is me. I'm finally getting into my story and what I have to say as a choreographer. Nice. Um, and I have to say that I you know, was really proud of that piece. I was really proud of the process and those students. So it really did come out of us being, you know, secluded in our own homes, our our apartments, um, and dancing over Zoom. And <laughs> coming up with this idea of, of how when we came back together, we were so grateful to be in the studio together. Never take that for granted again. But the right. idea we had to figure out how to interact again, especially as dancers. I mean, dancers are very... Well, I guess we're all different, but, um, you know, 
very hands-on and, and we take verbal cues, you know, somebody's not feeling good. We can tell by the way they're slumped over. And right. we got back into the studio together. It was just like this overwhelming sense of joy of never taking for that for granted again. But then we also had to re remind ourselves how to interact again. Right. And right. So that, that basically <laughs> came from like looking at somebody being in their bedroom, dancing on their floor, somebody sitting on a park bench alone, um, somebody passing somebody on the street and like, Oh, we have a mask on. I don't recognize who you are. Um, mm -hmm. But then needing that physical touch again. So it was all all kind of exploring those ideas in this time of COVID. So it was yeah. awesome experience for all of us. Mm -hmm. And really interesting contrast because in the prior year you had um, uh, two students who did a piece where they were consistently in contact with each other. Right. And right. it was amazing, just amazing. So like this is this has been a kind of a constant theme that we've talked about on uh, the episodes so far. It's like, what's this going to look like? Yeah. You know, uh, the last episode we talked about how Broadway is coming back and and how we're casting for things and how uh, how uh, we're looking at new shows and and how new shows that were going to come up right around pandemic time probably don't have the steam that they did then so we're just going to fill it with big popular shows that everybody wants to see and we're like man what is this going to look like yeah i mean when it all shakes down but um speaking of those recitals and and your your shows you also do some really cool stuff for your students you work really hard to get them residencies, meaning you have professional companies come in, companies you may have worked with, people you may never have worked with, uh, come in to um, help the students figure out what their company is all about. So yeah. you have a cool one coming up this fall. Who's that? Uh, so Ryrie Woodbury da Contemporary Dance Company, they're based in Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, that is a tongue twister. I know, and I'm always... <laughs> that I'm saying it wrong. So I'll apologize <laughs> now if I mispronounced that. Um, but I'm really excited about this company. They're a contemporary company. Um, and I, they're going to do a week-long residency, master classes, um, workshops with our students at Sheridan College. And I hope to kind of open that up to, to, to high school students in the area as well. So oh. should be really exciting. That is so cool. That is so cool. I mean, you know, uh, I, I still work for the college uh, in my day job and it, you know, it, it's kind of interesting to still see that there's something of a stigma of, well, what's a two-year college going to get me? I'm like, right. how about this amazing dance opportunity uh, that, you know, if you went out and tried to seek it on your own it would cost hundreds, if not thousands of dollars oh, to get a week of master classes with these brilliant performers. So yeah. that's so great that you did that last year. Uh, well, I guess the last two years, you you were working pretty heavily with the uh, the New York choreographer Daniel Gortzman, correct? Um, yep. And he company. man, he had an amazing show that that year. Um, so and uh, one of our students actually got a internship with him because right. of of that residency. He that's did, he right. Did that. There's mm -hmm. been some great things that that have happened, and I think that you know, the program that I've tried to create here is really based on bringing these amazing artists to our small institution and creating those connections mm -hmm. for our students. And, you know, you don't really always get that one-on-one -on -one attention in a, in a four-year institution or a, a bigger um, college. And I think that's something that's super special is we have oh, a small yeah. program and they're getting these connections with companies, uh, San Francisco, Oakland, New York, Oof. all over yep. Utah. That's awesome. That is so great. Well, here we are. I called you here for a reason. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> so 
Okay, so as you know, the premise of the show is I bring people in who I have worked with, uh, who have a per- you know a particular spin on the artistic world, and I usually don't tell them what we're going to be talking about. Now, I did not tell you what we're going to be talking about, right? No, you did not. Okay. No. However, I gave you a bit of a hint because I really want to hear your perspective on this, and I this could probably be an entire episode on its own. But I'm going to start with this question. I usually start with a question. So, Stephanie, why do we dance? You know, (laughs) simple answer. Yeah, (laughs) you would think it's a simple answer. And honestly, it's not a simple answer for me. I feel like Hmm. I, I feel like we dance for so many reasons. We dance because that's who we are. I think we dance because it's the universal language. Right. I, I mean, Okay. To dance when we when we're happy when we're feeling good, but we also have a, a movement or a dance, if you will, when we're not feeling good when we're when we're down. Oh yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I we dance because it's who we are. I ah I okay. I, it's oh just, interesting. It's innate in us. Okay, it's innate. It's it's something inborn. Yeah. We have to we have to get it out. Yeah. Somehow, it's right. a form of expression. Obviously, like there's a language in dance. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. I think that, you know, I, for me, I can tell you that I think sometimes our movements are more honest, not, they're usually more honest than our words are most of the time. I mean, I think. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Movements and actions tell the story, especially for dancers. And I know for me, I, mm-hmm. I can tell you through my body language better about something than I can with my words. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So. I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story then here, and okay. uh, maybe maybe this will help us answer that why do we dance question a little bit better. Oh, boy. <laughs> I can't wait for this. The French city of Strasbourg lies on the country's extreme eastern border. However, it has been part of many countries and civilizations due to many changes in political structures, military conflicts, etc. It has also enjoyed its time as a free and sovereign city, particularly when it was within the borders of the Holy Roman Empire. So a while ago, Strasbourg is one of the many cities settled along the Rhine River, which flows north from the mountains of Switzerland through several countries before dumping out into the North Sea. The Rhine was a major route of commerce between many of these cities in the empire, and Strasbourg was no different. So many things came and went along the Rhine. In July 1518, a particular event occurred in the streets of Strasbourg, which to this day defies explanation. The event has been chronicled in many historical documents, including poetry, sermons, local periodicals, doctor's notes, and even city council meeting minutes. Do you know what I'm talking about yet? No. Oh, good. Okay. But most of this historical record comes comes to us from the somewhat accurate, but also somewhat misogynistic account of historian Theophrastus von Hohenheim, better known as Paracelsus. (laughs) Glad he took a pen name. (laughs) Yes. Okay. In the middle of a rather typical afternoon during a very hot summer, a woman known only as Frau Trophia, Frau meaning it is the the German word for Mrs. So we only know her as Mrs. Trophia. Mm-hmm. was witnessed walking out into the middle of a fairly empty street where she began to dance. There was no music playing, and she was totally alone doing this. While some of the movements were jerky and erratic, most of them seemed to keep rhythm 
and sequences of movements would repeat frequently, which is why it's considered dance. In fact, in a poem that was written about it, it was just like they, they would whirl about and, and lift their legs and it seemed like it was definitely dance. While onlookers tried to get Frau Trophia's attention, they were completely ignored. Her husband tried to persuade her to come into their home and he was met with the same disregard as anyone else. The woman just kept dancing. Do you know where I'm going now? No, no. Oh, no. good, yes. No. Nope. After several hours, Frau Trophia dropped from exhaustion and the dancing seemed to have abated. But after a short rest, she was back up and dancing again. By the time evening hit, Frau Trophia finally took rest and was able to sleep. The next morning, though, the dancing began again. And just as happened the day before, Frau Trophia would dance for several hours, drop from exhaustion, sleep for a while, and then begin dancing again with no signs of stopping. She just kept going. This went on for at least two more days. And what's the longest you've ever done, like, any kind of dance or show or concert? Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, been in rehearsal all day and then had yeah, to okay. that night, but never days on end. I'd say <laughs> six hours of rehearsal followed by a two hour show, maybe max. Okay. okay so yes. maybe eight with like a break in there or something, right? Oh yeah, okay. absolutely. Okay. 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 On the second day, it was noticed that the woman's shoes were starting to wear through. On the third day, her feet began to bleed. Mm-hmm. None of this stopped her from dancing. Again, she did stop when she became exhausted and could sleep. But whenever she was awake, she was dancing. Mm-hmm. Now, you're probably wondering why no one got involved right away. We'll definitely be getting into that. But most of the reluctance seems to come from the idea of avoiding whatever demon or contagion may have been possessing Frau Trophia to continue her dance. Right. When this dancing fit had gone on for somewhere between four to six days... No one's really sure. The authorities got involved. (laughs) Wow. They were were able to get the woman somewhat contained and had her shipped to the Temple of St. Vitus in the the foothills of the nearby Voskis Mountains. Now, remember that name, St. Vitus. We'll be coming back to that later. Yes, okay. After she was carted off, not much is heard about what happened to Frau Trophia. From what can be ascertained from historical records and accounts, the poor inflicted woman got the help she needed. Mm -hmm. But her plight soon fell in the shadow of the events of the next several days. Once the poor woman was removed from the city, several other instances of random and unstoppable dancing broke out in several parts of Strasbourg. Have you ever heard of these before? I have not. Oh my word. By the end of a week, roughly 34 new dancers had begun their own fevered dancing, much to the chagrin of the upper class who basically controlled the city. So here's a quote. The rich citizens who ran the city were not amused. Mystified by the chaos in the streets, the city councilors consulted local doctors who, in keeping with standard medical wisdom, declared the dancing to be overheated blood on the brain. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The The councilors implemented what they felt was the appropriate treatment, more dancing. They ordered the clearing of an open-air grain market, commandeered guild halls, and erected a stage next to the horse fair. To these locations, they escorted, like just kind of pushed them along, they escorted the crazed dancers in the belief that by maintaining frantic motion, they would shake off the sickness. The counselors even hired pipers and drummers and paid strong men to keep the afflicted upright by clutching their bodies as they whirled and swayed. Wow. (laughs) By the end of July, 
into early August, somewhere between 200 and 400 people had been afflicted with unstoppable dancing. Unstoppable dancing, I love. <laughs> <Right. laughs> oh, this is this is grisly, but I love this. It is estimated that over 100 dancers succumbed to the affliction and died. Died. I knew that. I, I thought that's where we we're going, dancing ourselves to death. Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Some were even said to temporarily come out of their mania long enough to jump into the river, which is you know it's right along the Rhine, jump into the river in efforts to soothe their wounded feet but not being able to stand the shock of the cold, much less the pain of standing on their feet after dancing to the point of exhaustion for several days, many drowned once they got into the river. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Eventually, all of the dancers were removed from Strasbourg and sent to the same mountain temple where they had sent Frau Trophia. Hey, that worked, so let's do this. And by the end of September, pretty much all wild dancing had ceased in the city of Strasbourg. Wow. This was, the, this was the last time in recorded history of a case of what has come to be known as choreomania or St. Vetus's dance or my personal favorite, dancemania. Ah, dancemania. <laughs> oh my goodness. I, so I, don't, I have never heard that story before. No? I oh. have heard. I, yeah, I feel like there's bits and pieces coming back to my mind now while you're talking about this from like a dance history lesson of dancing ourselves to death, but I have never heard that before. And that is intense. Yeah. Yeah. And while this doesn't necessarily have anything to do directly with theater, I mean, theater and dance are so inextricably linked. It's like, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a performance. You're using your entire body to tell a story. Just hearing that story out of context. Yeah. <laughs> like, what would you think? What would you think was the, what was going on there? Oh my God. <laughs> my first, my first thought is like people being suppressed and not, not able to, to express themselves freely. That's my first, mm-hmm. you know, go to is like, you know, that, that, that woman, she just needed to get something out. And for some reason, wasn't able to get something to, out. and she had mm-hmm. to, that was the only way for her to free herself from whatever was ailing her mm-hmm. mentally or, or physically. So that's my yep. first go-to, you know, and see, Paracelsus said the same thing. <laughs> ah. he, he thought she, and like I said, he was a terrible misogynist. Uh-huh. So uh, he basically was like, well, I know she was trying to embarrass her husband. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> so now here are some of the more prominent theories from today. Okay. Uh, looking at what happened. Okay. Now, as is the case, when looking back on unexplainable phenomena in history, most historians will look through the lenses of technology or medicine that has advanced in the centuries in, in such events, right? Most of these explanations would like to indicate that there might have been some level of medical malady. I mean, you know, you've heard of things like, uh, you know, fevers that attack the mind uh, yeah. and, and they're very contagious and, and everything. So, you know, but to inspire everybody specifically to go out and dance. And like I said, it was defined as dance. They were whirling about. They might have been, you know, doing little plies and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, and just whatever they could do, they're just out there dancing. OK. Now, if that's the case, though, if it was some kind of fever, then what was it? Yeah. So one suggestion for the overheated blood on the brain comes from the idea of poor storage of foodstuffs. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Here's a quote. For some time, ergotism 
looked like a good contender. Ergotism results from consuming food contaminated with a species of mold called ergot that grows on damp rye and produces a chemical related to LSD. Oh, okay. <laughs> it can induce terrifying hallucinations and violent twitching. Ah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Now, we'll get into it later, but for the decades uh, before the incident in 1518, Strasbourg suffered a horrendous series of agricultural disasters that w- that could have ruined in, like entire stocks of grain that had been stored. They would have horrendous winters followed by a really rapid melt in summer and flooding. So, you know, that could have gotten into grain barns and yeah. Uh-huh. So the mold known as ergot, which grew on damp rye, could have been baked into breads and then eaten by many, particularly the poorer classes who couldn't afford the top top level stuff. But in any incidents in which a person suffered from ergotism, they would only last a few hours, maybe a day at best. Uh Certainly not long enough for a person to nonstop dance for days on end. Right. So, okay, good. We have this LSD in the bread. All right, fine. Uh Okay. Another popular theory is that the overheated blood on the brain was code for a form of fever, like I was suggesting earlier. Mm -hmm. Now, there are a number of infectious diseases present at the time that could have resulted in a fever, like your body actually got a fever, so that part was easy to understand. But what disease would then have caused the infected to go on a dancing frenzy? Right. And what person (laughs) wants to dance when they're feeling horrible? (laughs) With a fever. I want to be no. laying on the couch. <laughs> I mean, okay, okay. Now, I, I do have to tell this because um, you have a wonderful little daughter. And how old is she now? She's four. Four. And, and, and you were like 14 months pregnant with that kid, tap dancing <laughs> in a show. And I was like, oh, my God, that's some wicked form of torture. And you were just out there like a damn little whirly gig. You were fine. Yeah. They were awesome. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but I mean, you've got to have those days where you're like, okay, not feeling it today. Absolutely. Mm-mm. We all Body, do. Body's not having it. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. have you ever heard of Sidenum's chorea? No, I have not. Mm, okay. So a chorea, C-H-O-R-E-A, okay. is one of a series of involuntary movement disorders. This one was named by Thomas Sydenham, that's S-Y-D-E-N-H-A-M. He's a renowned 17th century physician who categorized and defined the series of symptoms of the 1581 epidemic as one specific condition. Okay, so Sydenham's chorea is described like this. It's defined as random appearing, continuous, while awake, involuntary movements, which can affect the entire body. This often includes the face and the tongue. Symptoms in arms and legs are often worse on one side of the body. It usually develops within weeks to months following a group A beta hemolytic streptococcal inf- infection, and so like strep throat, mm-hmm. and may occur as an isolated finding or as a major complication of acute rheumatic fever. It is considered an autoimmune disorder, meaning it occurs when the body's immune system, which normally responds to foreign substances, mistakenly targets part of the body, disrupting normal function. Mm. So, so somebody got really sick Mm -hmm. and, and I I think what it kind of suggested too, is like some of the nerves, like some of their uh, protective coating would be sheared off. And so they just start twitching and moving uncontrollably. Like they just just can't stop. Now, when Sydenham had defined this condition, an outbreak had not really been seen for the prior 100 years 
and definitely not on the scale of that in Strasbourg. Right. Rather, it would pop up in isolated and in individual cases, particularly after the victim would have a, a, a recently had a strep infection like strep throat. And I'm going to show you some video here. And while I'm showing you that, I want you to kind of describe what you're seeing here. Okay. Okay. So I've sent you those videos and I want you to go ahead and there's a first one. It looks like a little boy is lying down on a bed. Okay. Here we go. Okay. Okay, so it yeah, lots of movement in the fingers and the toes, okay. the head moving back to back from side to side. Okay. Okay, now he's walking down the hall. All right. Yeah, to me it looks like um my my little sister has cerebral palsy and she does some things right, with yeah. her fingers um and her hands sometimes. It looked I don't know, almost uh, a little spastic in movement. Um Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I describe that first one. Okay. And now the next one, we don't have to watch all the way through. It's like four okay. minutes long, but okay. but the first, I, I'm so excited to see your reactions to this. Okay. <laughs> it, it's loading. It's loading now. Let's okay. see. Cool. And it's silent. So you won't hear anything. Okay. Ah. So again, mm -hmm. lots of stuff with the hand. Mm -hmm. She's sitting down and she's got some, some neck movements going on. To me, this looks more dancey for sure. Okay. Okay. Um, it says grimacing and non-repetitive she's doing stuff with her face and her mouth in particular right like Lots she's of like facial expression sticking her tongue out mm -hmm. like she's like grabbing at her jaw right, and stuff right yeah. okay <laughs> diminished tendon reflexes so they're they're using one of those um reflex uh, oh, like the, the hammer on the knee mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. movements are far more marked in her left hand that was a quote that was on here Yep. Yeah. The hand movement is really interesting to me. It looks very similar to to my sister's hand movement a lot of times when she's reaching oh. for something. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So interesting. Right. Right. And it so these kids, these kids were, you know, they had like some bad infection. Right. And, you know, like a serious cough or, you know, something like that. And, right. and then their body, like two to three weeks later, just started jerking around like that. And wow. so if you watch to the end of the video, basically that girl had to be put on bed rest for about seven weeks and then she was fine. Wow. Yeah. And, and it would not happen. The whole jerky movements and, and, and like, you know, the, the strange spasms of the hands and stuff, those didn't happen while she was asleep. Wow. It was only while she was awake that and everything just started. Voluntary movement. That's just the, yep. wow. Yeah. Wow. Yep. So it would seem we have something of a scientific response, which may shed some light on the events of Strasbourg in 1518. However, you notice that the cases you just watched seem to be affecting children only. Right. In modern medical definition, the condition does still occur, but it seems only to affect children between ages five to about puberty. Wow. Okay. Plus, if the victim does have this, it does resolve itself untreated in about three weeks to two months. Which does also somewhat explain how the afflicted in Strasbourg just eventually stopped dancing. Right. So, so that's, that's one theory, right? Uh -huh. But we know that the first person who had it was Frau Trophia. They right. don't say her age, but they, say, they give her the symbol of respect that she's a missus. So mm -hmm. she's a married woman. Mm -hmm. So she's older. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, yeah, yeah. You could have been married at 14 at that time. But mm -hmm. yeah. So Sure. We could go ahead and accept this as a good reasoning, even though it doesn't seem to cover a few plot holes. Right. One, 
the afflicted dancers in Strasbourg were not exclusively children, but rather were more adults. Two, the children with syndromes chorea in the videos do have some facial spasms, like you were saying, but the dancers in Strasbourg were described as having very focused and somewhat terrified expressions. Yeah. Okay. Number three, those afflicted with syndromes chorea do not experience symptoms while asleep, only while they're awake. Now, while this does align with the dancers in Strasbourg, the sufferers of syndromes chorea are still responsive while awake. They can talk to you and can respond verbally, whereas the dancers in 1518 could not. Yeah. So... Wow. <laughs> when I watched these two videos that you just shared with me, too, I, it, it looked almost uncomfortable to be standing Oh, when yeah. I was, and I didn't watch watch the whole thing of that second one. So that also kind of makes me question, you know, if they were dancing, they, they were standing, obviously, mm-hmm. it looked uncomfortable mm-hmm. for these two children to really be on their feet. I could be wrong. That's just kind right, of what right, I Right, right, right. Well, uh, particularly you're talking about the little boy walking down the mm-hmm. hall. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, his leg just like almost slipped out from under him. Right, you right. Know? So, uh, I mean, it didn't look like he was in control. Right, right. So... That's a nice theory, medicine, but no. <laughs> so yes, while Sydenham's chorea could be a leading attender, historian John Waller posits completely new ideas about what could cause dancing outbreaks up and down the Rhine. Now, I got a book that I'd be happy to share with you sometime. Ah, love it. It's the uh, primary source of this uh, episode called yeah. The Dancing Plague. Yeah. Uh, the strange true story of an extraordinary illness. And to me, this is simultaneously the most prudent theory and the most difficult to explain. <laughs> I love it. Okay. However, you were almost kind of hitting on it a little bit earlier with there's just so much tension and pressure and we had to get we had to get it out, right? Yeah. Yeah. But you know, when you have to get dance out. Like, I mean, today we have things like smash rooms where right. people can go in and take a sledgehammer to a few things, you know, and, and, and after about 20 minutes, you're fine. Yeah. You, you, you got your rage out, right? <laughs> yeah. So in order to explain this very difficult to explain thing, we're going to have to imagine ourselves in the circumstances of a typical Strasbourg citizen in the middle, late Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. But before we begin that, I have to stress just how seriously And literally, a typical European city dweller took spiritualism. Mm. (laughs) I mean, it was generally understood that the Christian God was in charge of all things and all people were working towards a good afterlife. And you could usually tell if God was pleased or not by things that would happen with little explanation. <laughs> so, so like for example, if a wheat crop is particularly healthy one year, it can be determined that God is rewarding the farmer for good behavior. Mm-hmm. But that also meant that if anything bad happened, it was understood that God was probably not happy for some reason or another. Yes, and the whole town knew that you did not do something right. Right, 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 right. Uh, yeah, and, and that that could be individualized, or it could be like it happened to everybody. Uh huh. And who rocked the boat? Yes. So the problem was figuring out just what it was God was unhappy about and how to remedy the situation. Yeah. <laughs> and man, did the citizens of Strasbourg have a lot to go on by 1518. <laughs> oh, God. After I read the first chapter, I just went, well, no wonder. <laughs> <laughs> so 
we'll start a couple decades earlier. 1492. Well, we all know that year, not just a significant year in the realm of global exploration. For the purposes of our story, 1492 represents something of a point of no return for the mental health of the city of Strasbourg. Okay. <laughs> as I alluded to just a moment ago, your average citizen in the late medieval period didn't see just random events as random. Everything was assigned from a higher power. So when a meteorite roughly the size of a basketball landed in a field outside the town of Ensisheim, which is just south of Strasbourg, the citizens of Strasbourg began to doubt the good standing of their afterlife. Well, yeah. <laughs> God just sent a bullet. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. So it was widely suggested that God had allowed the rock to fall as a reminder to the citizens of Strasbourg to mind their P's and Q's. <laughs> but why here and why now? Well, while Strasbourg seemed like a fairly average city on the surface, it had quite a bit of tension growing in the background. You see, the city is said to be over 2,000 years old. And after the fall of Rome, Strasbourg was ruled by the bishops of the Strasbourg Diocese of the Catholic Church. However, this changed in 1262 when the people of Strasbourg revolted against the church and won their freedom effectively securing their own sovereignty and becoming the first free city in the Holy Roman Empire, but still maintaining the Christian faith and tithing to it. Right. Okay. <laughs> so they're like, you don't control the city, but we'll right. still come to your church and pay our dues. Yes. Okay. okay. But this citizen control was not without contention. Mm -hmm. For centuries, it annoyed city fathers of Strasbourg that so much control of the citizens was held by the church. And yet they were free from taxation. Oh, wow. Okay. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yep. No problem. Yeah. So silent power struggles for control of the town went on for centuries. Wow. Oh, and speaking of the members of the church, they weren't exactly made of the most noble and chaste material. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, we think of like monks and nuns and yeah. like living absolutely bereft of fun lives. Uh -huh. Oh, no, that's not the case. Many clergymen used their power and wealth to set themselves up in the most lavish conditions and clothing. Ah. One, one story told of a nun who often went to a tavern for a drink simply covered in jewelry. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> a nun. Uh -huh. Sister's coming again. Gosh, you could drink into the table. Um, <laughs> and... It was quite well known that most male clergy kept concubines in their quarters. Oh. Right? Okay. <laughs> no fornication. I can do it, though. Yes. Um, <laughs> no, certainly there were members of the clergy who were fighting the tide, but the condition remained. One such opponent was Johann Geiler von Kaisenberg, and here we're, we'll know him as Reverend Geiler. He's a priest in Strasbourg who consistently criticized the behavior of the clergy and would often demand that the church purge itself of such wickedness. Geiler was also known to be quite dramatic when confronted when comforting those people afflicted with moral woes. Like he just like he'd weep like a televangelist for them and would make quite a display in attempts to salvage their souls. Okay. However, Geiler died in 1510, leaving his parishioners without spiritual guidance. Uh, <laughs> so they really clung to him they were like okay yeah. you're the one you're the one guy who's helping us save our souls thank you right and then he dies 
Right. <laughs> and they're like, great. Okay. Now what do we do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you see, this was quite a predicament for the poorer classes of Strasbourg. Many began to believe that the blessings and sacraments that were bestowed upon them by the wicked clergy, well, these wouldn't count upon death in determining the fate of one's afterlife. Uh-huh. Thus, with a tally of false blessings in one's ledger, this would mean that a person's soul could be wandering around purgatory for even hundreds of years. Wow. So they legitimately believe this. Yes. Okay. So many citizens felt that their possibility of getting into heaven was absolutely in the balance, and they probably weren't going to get any help from the church. Uh-huh. Their everlasting souls walked the tip of a blade. Wow. <laughs> now, the passing of Reverend Geiler was also one of the last heroes the lower classes could depend on. There was something of a vigilante named Joss Fritz who tried to muster an underground rebellion on at least three separate occasions in the first decade of the 1500s. He came quite close to being able to pull off his coup d'etat each time, but each time a guilt-stricken rebel would blab to the clergy and confess to the whole thing, and each time the rebellion was either squashed before it began or it just kind of fizzled out gradually. Oh, man. (laughs) So you've got these people who are, like, putting their hope in something. Yes. And then it's just gone. Yes. Gone. Okay. Uh, Right? (laughs) Now, to the citizens of Strasbourg, it would seem that God had forsaken them, not only heroes, but any form of hope through the movements of men. But, of course, that's all psychological to some degree, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there had to be things going well, right? Yeah. Let's talk about some more tangible things that, to speak of a well-being of a city. I mean, you know, this is all here, I mean, all conjecture, and they're they're talking about what's going on in their spiritual world, okay? But physically, like, okay, I mean, the economic health of a city, especially for commoners, would be parallel to the agricultural health of a city. So if a good harvest comes, then the farmers are able to sell their wares and gather seeds for next year's crops. People can buy those wares, make their uh, different materials out of them, you know, cloth, bread, you know, whatever. Right. Now, Now the commoners can pay their taxes, feed their families, and prepare for winter. And if all goes according to plan, things should just play out as usual. Right. So let's throw some natural disasters into the mix. Of course. Okay. <laughs> oh my goodness, these poor people. I know, right? <laughs> it would seem that the almanac was completely out of whack after the fall of this meteorite. Uh-huh. Now, I, I don't want to suggest that the meteorite falling to Earth had any kind of weird, like Chernobyl powers that you know mutated the atmosphere or anything like that. Right. It just, it just was kind of the tipping point. But for some reason, in the years after that, the world went kind of bananas. In total, I think in the 26 years between the meteorite falling and the dance epidemic of 1518, the number of years that recorded a bountiful harvest were maybe six. Uh, And Stephanie, in in your off season, when you're not teaching, you and your husband are ranchers, right? Yes. Yes, we are. So, so you know the importance of uh, bringing in a good crop every year yeah. and how much it affects everything. Oh, absolutely. It really is kind of life or death. I mean, we got to have enough hay to feed our animals and, and hay to sell. So it's extremely mm-hmm. important. Right. And, and I hear that here in Wyoming, we're almost always two weeks away from a drought. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yes. I mean, it just depends on when rain falls, where it falls. 
and you know, if it if it's good, we're good. If it's bad, then we got some planning to do. Absolutely. Right. Yep. Okay. Yes. So, out of twenty six years, twenty of them were awful harvests. Wow. <laughs> In all the other years outside those six, agricultural progress was made virtually impossible by either drought or early freezes, or long winters, or scorching hot summers, or even tremendous hailstorms. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay. There was there was one hailstorm that was reported to have hailstones the size of fists. Wow. <laughs> that just destroyed crops. Yes. Yep. I've yep. actually seen that happen. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, of course, when there's a poor harvest, there is almost always a famine, you know, widespread mm-hmm. hunger. And with any famine, there is almost always a plague because the citizens do not have the nutrients to establish good immunity. And let's not forget that late medieval cities almost had zero systems of sanitation to remove filth and excrement from the number mm-hmm. of people and animals that were common in the city. So it was stinky. Yes. Which brought flies, which mm-hmm. would bring disease. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and of course, this didn't really this didn't really affect the wealthier citizens. They had chalets and getaways far away from the city that they of could escape they to. Of course they did. <laughs> and they'd return once uh, they got word that the plague had, had passed. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> them to come home. But, you know, all the common people, they had to stick there and tough it out. Yes. So again... None of these severe weather conditions were normal. And with all of these events, along with the increasing taxes from the wealthy because their pocketbooks were hurt by low harvests every year, the stresses placed upon the lower classes were monumental. They could not believe how they had been so forsaken. And also, let's keep in mind that the calendar was filled with ritualized festivals and holidays to honor the saints. So in the minds of an average Strasbourg commoner, perhaps there were particular saints who had a hand in this. Mm. <laughs> now, remember when I talked about the Shrine of St. Vitus, where Frau Trophia was sent? Right, right. It would seem that the citizens of Strasbourg had found their MacGuffin. <laughs> mm. You see, St. Vitus was martyred in the days of the Roman Emperor Diocletian. The emperor sure didn't like how much attention Vetus was giving and spreading the word of this Jesus character. So he had Vetus tortured. According to legend, quote, they had him immersed in a cauldron of boiling lead and tar. <laughs> Your eyes just got as big as saucers. But according to legend, he came out miraculously unscathed. Nor was he harmed by a hungry lion that Diocletian set upon him. Instead, it affectionately licked his hands. But here we go. Right? Here we go. On one occasion, he was placed in a room with, quote, seductive dancers in Uh order to tempt him back to the Roman gods. Mm -hmm. Even this failed. Ah, wow. (laughs) Bring on the sexy dancing women. We'll get him back in our Uh (laughs) house. Oh, my God. Oh, man. Soon after this, St. Vetus was just beaten to death, and the legend goes on that he was carried to heaven by an angel in exchange for the tortures he met on earth and given his sainthood. There you go. Okay. But of course, we caught that part about the dancing. Yes. Well, the dance outbreak of 1518 is not the only one that actually happened. Several other dancing epidemics occurred up and down the Rhine in the few centuries before the outbreak in Strasbourg. But the very scant records that still exist seem to indicate that one, the occurrences were nowhere near the scale as the event in Strasbourg, and two, 
They all occurred on or around the Saints Day dedicated to St. Vitus. Or I, I've been saying it wrong this whole time. It's St. Vitus. My God, that's uh, vital. Okay. Okay. Jeez, St. <laughs> Vitus. Or they occurred around the birthday of St. Vitus. So hence, because of these outbreaks, uh-huh. the affliction of spontaneous dancing came to be known as St. Vitus's dance. And it was widely believed that it was inflicted upon, inflicted by the saint upon those with weak morals. Wow. <laughs> oh my goodness. I mean, honestly, when you've had to have felt it, like a dancing high, like, yeah. you're in, you know, I mean, it, you get yourself into a state and yes. you're there, your body's just moving and it's just, it, it's what feels right at the time. Yeah. Right. Yes, absolutely. Okay. That belief about St. Vitus inflicting dance upon people spread throughout the Rhineland and was definitely on the hearts and minds of the lower classes of Strasbourg in the summer of 1518. Yeah. Quote, since the fall of the Ensisheim meteor, warning signs had been multiplying with sickening regularity. What could this mean other than God and his saints had selected this region to feel their wrath? Nor were these beliefs primitive, irrational, or superstitious. For many, citing God's flail as a cause of everything from sickness to floods to earthquakes to hail and hailstorms satisfied a cognitive need for certainty and simplicity. But it came at a heavy price. Mm-hmm. For an unfortunate run of events had convinced thousands that their souls were in peril. Wow. <laughs> okay, okay. So how did this convince Frau Trophia that the only way out of this was to dance like it was 1599. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, my mind is blown. Right? Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So some of Reverend Geiler's last thoughts to his parishioners before he died was that they needed to take responsibility for their own souls, that yeah. no one else could help them out with individual absolution. Mm-hmm. Therefore, Frau Trophia most likely took it upon herself to appease St. Vitus with a dance. Yeah. But how can someone just convince themselves to dance to the point of repeated injury and exhaustion? Yeah. I mean, there, yes. When we've had long show days or something, you know, we just kind of go, okay, buckle up. Let's go. Yeah. You know, you find that extra reserve of energy. Right. And then, and then, you know, you go home and crash after that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Too many times. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Quote, no biological or chemical agent known to 16th century Europe could have impelled Frau Trophia or these men and women to dance for several days. There is only one plausible solution. They danced in a deep state of trance. Uh-huh. Yeah. Were you thinking that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, modern psychological medicine states that inducing a state of trance can more or less override the rational mind so that actions that would be irrational could occur, like uh-huh. dancing on bloody and bruised feet. Right. It wouldn't be that hard to imagine that Frau Trophia could have gotten herself into a trance-like state. Mm-hmm. I mean, to be frank, the lower classes of Strasbourg were hungry and desperate, on the edge of hopelessness, and the concept of potentially spending centuries in purgatory for something yeah. that was completely out of their control was impetus enough to take drastic action. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it would seem that Frau Trophia may have induced herself into a state of trance mm-hmm. and just began dancing to appease St. Vitus. Yep. Yeah. Dancing to save her soul. You know? Right, right, exactly. And actually, it was something of a well-known custom that St. Vitus's dance could be cursed upon someone verbally in response to offense. Like, 
somebody says, may St. Vitus be on you. Oh. Yeah, right. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> For those of you that didn't see it, I cursed Stephanie into some wild fits of dancer just now. And once that curse was on you, the only way to stop it would have been to dance until the saint was appeased. Wow. Okay. Wow. Now, this leaves just one thing out. How did this afflict everyone else? Mm-hmm. It's fairly simple. Monkey see, monkey do. Yeah. Yep. Modern psychological medicine also has shown us that people in dire circumstances will take desperate measures to feel better. Now, it wasn't really widespread that Frau Trophia was attempting to appease St. Vitus, but it's not at all unusual to imagine that other commoners like Frau Trophia in similar circumstances would reach the same conclusions that she did. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a shrine just like 20 miles away. So he's definitely in their minds. Yes. So therefore, by and by, and out of no direct or known communication between dancers, members of the Strasbourg citizenry induced themselves into their own trance states and would dance in their own manners in efforts to save their everlasting souls. Yes. Wow. (laughs) (sighs) Now, as Waller suggests, this can be the only plausible explanation for a mass dance that broke out as slowly as it did. One unfortunate mishap is that Sydenham, who, you know, had that Coria named after him, mm-hmm. ultimately defined this outbreak as the malady that is named after him. And therefore, St. Vitus's dance became intern- interminably linked with Sydenham's Coria from then on. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. But to be honest, they were two different conditions. Yeah. One is a result of a long-lasting infection and usually only affects children. The other is the result of people completely torn down on a psychological level, feeling that the only way to save their souls was to dance like they've never danced before. Yeah, wow. To this day, no such outbreaks of St. Vitus's dance have been recorded. Wow, that's amazing. That's the story of Dantzamania. What story, yes. (laughs) Oh my goodness, but... (laughs) Wow. So, you know, coming back to why do we dance? Because we have to. Because sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes we don't have a choice. No, we got to save our oh. soul. Oh my gosh. And, and, and you know, I, I, I didn't read any afterwards. Like if they just felt that, well, now it's okay. Yeah. Now we're yeah. good. I just, I mean, my mind is blown thinking about, <laughs> thinking about all of that. I just... Yeah, I mean, because like to going back to to talking about you know when you you have those moments on stage where it's like everything is just perfect and and it's that feeling of that you're doing something and you're exactly where you're you're meant to be in that moment moving. I, I could see why people would would want to dance as their form of prayer, as their form of like, because yeah. it feels so good. There's something about it when you're in that moment that this is who I am and this is who I'm meant to be. And so the idea of maybe offering that type of movement or dance as a form of prayer or forgiveness or. Right, right. You know. right. I mean, uh, there was so much that I've, I've left out here. There's mm-hmm. so much because, you know, there's allusions towards, um, you know, witchcraft and, and how women would just, and and yeah, it was all about women and, Mm -hmm. and women did this and women did that. And, you know, like I said, Paracelsus was a terrible misogynist. There is a whole thing that Waller put in the book about how, if you were a woman at that time, your life was already terrible. Yeah. Because one, 
you're basically only expected to stay in the home and, and, uh, you know, be a mother, um, and produce offspring Mm -hmm. and, you know, basically go with whatever the husband did and the husband might, you know, uh, he has his own problems Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, (laughs) I keep thinking of like Jon Snow in Game of Thrones and how, you know, Catelyn Stark never really liked him because he was a bastard child, but he was a good kid. But, you know, it's the result, like she thought that was a result of her husband's infidelity. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so in this time, you could just have another child that you didn't have, yeah, that you never gave birth to, but now you're responsible for it because your mm-hmm. husband went out and did something stupid. Yeah, surprise. Yeah, how about that? Uh, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, and then on top of that, you don't get to make any decisions in your government. You don't mm-hmm. get to make any decisions anywhere, and you get blamed for things all the yep. time. Yep. I mean, women are weak of morals all the time. They, I mean, it was Eve who ate the apple, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, man. I, I remember reading about this a few times through my, my studies. And like, there was this outbreak of random dancing. Nobody knows why. And we'll get back to that another time. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. excuse me? No. What? A dancing plague? Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. God, so, yeah. so crazy. I, I mean, I love, I love it dancing to save your soul. So I've always mm-hmm. said too, like there are the moments that I always feel like I am my true self is when I am dancing. And so right. I, you right. know, like thinking about that for myself when listening to this story that like, I don't know, finally getting to be who she was meant to be or say what she couldn't put into words. She said it through. Movement. Right. Right. And then everybody went, what's going on? Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we got to take her away. And then it, yeah. it, it, it impacted so many more people to go, mm-hmm. I should be doing that. Yeah. <laughs> that. I need to do that. Mm-hmm. I must do that. Oh, oh, so cool. So yeah. cool. You also hear about stories throughout dance and theater history about how, you know, this festival was uh, uh, celebrated with a ritualized dance performance Mm -hmm. or something like that. And, you know, there are very specific steps and movements that a person has to go through. And if they don't go through them the correct way, you might not have completed the ritual or the ceremony. Um, But, but, and, and equally uh, seen throughout history is people trying to stop it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't express yourself. About it. Yeah. 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 Wow. Mm. Well, there you go. I'm so glad that you didn't know that story. <laughs> no, no, that was incredible. Thank you for sharing that with me. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. I've been wanting to talk about it for a long time. There we go. Got an opportunity. I know I need to borrow that book that you yes. showed. Yes, I will get it to you. It's so great. That. It's a quick read too. Yeah. It's a good one. All right. Yeah. Well, there we go. Dancing Plague in the 1500s. Stephanie, thank you for joining for for this today. What a fun time this was. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Aaron. This was awesome. I had so much fun and I learned so much. (laughs) Hey, how about that? How about that? All right. And to my listeners, thank you for sticking around for another episode of Euripides Humanities. And I will see you at intermission.